What's up, everyone? This episode is brought to you by Mantra Chain, the security-first, compliance-focused L1, which is onboarding the next wave of financial institutions. You're going to be hearing all about them later in the program. But for now, Mantra, thanks for making the show possible. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by David Choi of Ministry. David, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Hey. Uh, dude, I'm really pumped about this conversation because you and I are going to spend a lot of time talking about the famous, what, you, what you've kind of dubbed the widowmaker trade of crypto, which is the grayscale or GBTC trade that took a whole bunch of big funds down, maybe most famously Fierro's Capital and kind of BlockFi to a certain extent, which you were in and kind of deeply know the mechanics of. But before we even get there, I thought it would be fun to start, you know, give a little bit of background about when you got started in crypto and maybe rewind the clock back to kind of 2018 and 2019 era, uh, because I think the opportunity set that existed for investors back then would paint it, it'll be helpful to understand as to why this GBTC trade was so popular. So you kind of take us back then, like, how did you first get into crypto? What were some of the stuff that you were doing back then? And maybe that'll we can lead into why so what this GBTC trade was and why so many folks were excited about it. Absolutely. I can give a little background about, like, I guess, where I came from, too, before crypto. Um, so I, uh, my, my first job was actually doing, like, art collateralization. So, you know, fireworks, like paintings, warhols. Um, and then I worked at Deutsche doing um, regal investment banking. So... Kind of been in the finance space and gone to crypto because I guess it was my natural calling. I mean, uh, 4chan or I guess growing up and, um, you know, the people, people were talking about on there and I was like, I didn't really belong in the banking world, I guess, because I was just such an internet native. Um, and, um, yeah, gone to crypto early ICO, like asked bombing to get into ICOs, like the people that were ruining ICOs. I guess I was one of those people. Um, and then that have obviously evolved into like, you know, more, I guess, akin to like a venture ecosystem. But, you know, back then it was pretty DeFi, um, which, uh, I think a lot of people can say was like very dark times when we thought like neo or like ibm ledger or the features uh, or like supply chain stuff it was just yeah. really off um and you know um like chain link stream was like kind of a thing um where it really wasn't used for anything it's just like oh it's gonna provide data for the real stuff not really for DeFi. um and so like a lot of this stuff wasn't really um a real use case yet um and DeFi was kind of like the first glimmer of like hope for what crypto could be um so that, that's kind of a i guess uh, my, my background and then i guess after that i was uh um did, did, did a lot of trades uh, and investments as my focus so and angel investing wasn't a thing funds didn't really exist back then um as you see today um there weren't really institutional funds um not much lp capital it was more so like hey we have some prop money and we're going to just play the, play the game. Um, so yeah, I, I can give a little context to that, um, uh, kind of what the era was like. I was just going to underline, man, that's, that's so resonated with me because that, that was when I first got into crypto as well, 2017. And back then it was like, there was, you basically, it felt like there was this barbell between like Dentacoin and like strawberries on the blockchain. And it was like, both of these things just suck. <laughs> you know, Neither one of these things feel particularly exciting. And then after that blow off at the end of, 2017 going to early 2018 it just felt like the tumbleweed was blowing through the metaphorical yeah. you know town square of crypto as an industry and it just it just felt pretty desolate i mean there wasn't much working back then but what, what was some of the stuff that you were kind of getting up to um i guess in 2019 it was like a, a seminal year because i was just like like the year after the the days like you now like this was like the post fbg era as we all kind of remember like when binance was kind of emerging and like tron um they're just doing their manufactured ios um which um back then was just kind of like they were just trying to find a use case um and they were just trying to find a business to to operate on 
Um, and it, it was working. They were building like the, I mean, exchanges were the only businesses that actually worked. Um, so like FTX was like probably one of the bigger like token launches that year that like actually made money. Um, uh, arguably the only one because, you know, I, th- I think it was like grand mining people knew like it's over, like everybody was in this trade and it didn't make money. Um, and that's like, you know, 2018 to 2019. Um, so this was like the first time, um, the, the market was starting to be active. This was just right when DeFi was at the cusp and it wasn't like a brand yet. Um, so really nothing was making money outside of just exchanges. Um, and, uh, uh, there was no like organic on-chain activity. So a lot of the questions were like, where can we find arbitrage ops? Where can we find money ops? Um, where can we find yield, which really didn't exist back then because DeFi didn't exist. Um, so, so looking for trades was just like kind of hard to find. Um, and there was, I guess, this like ruminations of, uh, of this, you know, I've, I've actually heard this first um, um, but among a lot of the institutional um, um, clientele, I guess, of crypto from the DRW jump and like all these other types in the world that were kind of, you know, softly looking at the space. Um, and they're talking about this um, inefficiency with uh, GPTC, um, which for some reason, the premium was so high. Um, but, you know, the original trade wasn't actually just using leverage at all. It was just like putting money BTC in, which, you know, to quickly describe that like people would put money into this product, um, like BTC into the product and they would get this share. And that share would be worth a lot more than their investment. The only risk was, you know, theta, which is you had to hold it for a year before you can redeem it. Um, and this obviously felt strange, um, but it made sense because it was one year long and to farm the ARB, um, it would take too long for you to redeem it and you would take the, uh, the BTC risk. Um, so um, it was it was not that popular, even though this premium existed for like years, like five years, like it was a premium. Um, and, you know, why the premium existed, I'll get into it in a minute. But the main idea was like, this was a trade um, that existed that actually made money. Well, nothing else did. Uh, so and it's kind of like a... Yeah. David, if I could just also like for folks in the audience who are, obviously folks will have heard of GBTC. Now it's one of, it's the ETF, which is issued by Grayscale. But for years, right, just to set the scene, GBTC was the structure of it. You probably know better than me. It's basically like a closed end fund, right? And this yep. was a way where if you were... Exactly. And if, if you wanted to own Bitcoin, but you couldn't for whatever reason you know, whatever regulations uh, you were help being, obli- uh, whatever regulatory stuff made you not be able to actually hold the underlying spot. Or if you just literally didn't want to deal with the the pain of custodying underlying Bitcoin, you could own this thing. But when you're talking about the premium discount, that's like these shares would trade yeah. at a discount or a premium to NAV. And for years, they traded at a premium, right? So did I, did I get all that right? Or is there... Precisely. So you would put, a, if, if say like you put a BTC in that's worth 5K um, back then, <laughs> very low back then. Um, but then a year later, it'd be 100% premium or it would be worth 10K in the equities market because you're trading shares um, on OTC markets. And for context, this is the number one traded uh, uh, shares on like effectively like a, a you know, pink sheets equivalent of a market, OTC markets. It's not, you know, this wasn't even Russell or even like in you know, an IZ or anything like that or like NASDAQ. It was really like, you know, it was a trust, exchange traded trust. It wasn't exchange traded fund. Um, the close ended to, for the audience that doesn't understand, like it means you can't redeem it. Um, as in like, if you put a BTC in, it's stuck there. <laughs> like you get a shares that represent it, but you can't redeem it. And you can imagine if there's a premium, that means that the inefficiency will continue because you can't redeem it. And that's the big difference is if you can redeem it, it's an ETF. Um, and, you know, historically, closed-ended funds always trade at a discount because you can't redeem it. Um, and uh, usually the way it's priced is like, hey, here's a management fee and you extrapolate out of seven years and then you discount to the present. So if it's 2% in seven years, whatever, it could be like a 10% discount, 20% discount, 30% discount. That's actually how TradFi um, has priced these assets. Um, for some reason, this was a premium. And it was a premium because, you know, 
before 2020, like I did retail by BTC in you know, the United States. Um, well, they could go on Coinbase, which is some, you know, back then was a sketchy, like kind of like, you know, had all these liquidations happening left and right, way back old when, because this was, you know, Wild West, um, or you use some like, you know, Chinese off, off, off platform exchange, or you just try to find an OTC like provider. But most people um, would just buy GPTC because they're like, it's GPTC and they don't actually, and it's like a weird pricing, like 23 cents or something, uh, $23 or something. Um, so they would just buy that. And that's why the premium existed because of, well, bad infrastructure. Um, that was a theory, at least. Um, and uh, and that's why people bought it. And that's why the premium was so high because of uneducated retail. Um, and of course, after 2020, when everybody's back at home, um, well, everybody knew how to buy Bitcoin because uh, well, you just go on Coinbase and you're, you're home. You're like, I can figure this out. You weren't like at a bar or like at work. You just had to buy quickly. Um, so that was kind of like uh, the reason why this premium existed structurally. Yeah. And again, for folks, it's a little bit of a wacky concept. It's like there's consider it like a GBTC, the fund is a box, right? And if you put $100 worth of Bitcoin into this box, then what you get is shares that are get minted to you. And those shares should theoretically track, there should be $100 of share for every $100 that's of Bitcoin in your box. And you're, I think that point that you just made is a really good one, because in theory, it's like, this should be worth less, right? That the share should yeah. be worth less in the box, because if I just have the actual underlying, then I can go trade it and do whatever I want with it. But now it's locked in this box. I have to pay management fees, so it should be less. But in GBTC, it was the opposite because of these weird structural factors that you're describing. So when you put your Bitcoin in the box, you actually, the shares were worth twice what the box was. So the in yeah. in theory, the value of the share should track the box, but they weren't. So that actually ended up representing, especially at a time when there wasn't, you know, especially if you were a big fund, um, like what Three Arrows Capital eventually ended up growing into, there weren't that many opportunities for you to deploy in size. So maybe that's kind of the setup of we're coming out of this brutal bear market, uh, this really long crypto winter. There wasn't a huge opportunity set. Even a lot of the opportunity sets that did exist back then were probably only available to like retail traders or or, or whatever. Like it, you couldn't put a lot of these trades on in size. And so GBTC sort of set up this super interesting opportunity. So can you describe yeah. like what, again, like just concretely, like what the arbitrage was that people were doing. And then what was it like? Was there a lot of demand for this in the early days? Like who kind of got in first? Like when did this trade yeah. really start taking off? Um, in a sense, there was a mean aggression. I actually heard somebody like do this trade um, with some leverage um, as like probably one of the first people to do with leverage, uh, you know, just in the meanderings in Puerto Rico, which is where I lived. Um, and uh, he made like 16x or something um, on this trade. Because if you think about it, you know, 5x leverage, um, the price of the asset doubled. Um, so that's like 10x. And then the premium was like, you know, like 20, 30%. And then you just multiply that. Um, then all those together, you get you end up getting 15x, like dollar for dollar, which, you know, <laughs> back then was absurd to hear. Um, and obviously that was a, um, that was the top of the mean regression before you get to the negative 40% as it is. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of like, um, what, what made me first hear about this was like, this guy made a lot of money. It's kind of like, um, how a lot of trades get shared in the hedge fund world. You talk about like, oh yeah, some guy made money. Like, let's see if this trade actually still works. Um, and uh, the, in summary, like the way it was um, first um, described was as I described, you just deposit the, the cryptocurrency inside the trust and the trust gives you shares um, one year later. Um, there was a big structural change that happened at this time. Um, obviously, they were launching different exchange traded trusts. That wasn't just BTC denominated, uh, denominated. I was actually doing only ETH. Um, and it was actually, um, well, frankly, uh, uh, it, it was still like the, the premium has never gone to a discount. 
ever in history. So it felt very interesting um, because, well, it just hasn't proven to be in a discount. Um, it was starting to be shared, I noticed, um, not among, not, not, we didn't get shilled this, but like other, other funds did where it was just being sold as a trade. Um, and just before I just jump in here, I, I don't think uh, BlockFi, I don't think um, uh, Grayscale, I don't think they were malicious actors at all. I actually think they were just, just pretty decent business people because they just found an inefficiency in the market where for some reason they're, they're, uh, they're, the, the product was actually working and it was actually serving a need. Um, all of this really was structured because there wasn't an ETF because of uh, go- a government inefficiency. Um, and if the you know, ETF existed, none of this would have happened. But because there was an inefficiency, they created a business around it. And so I don't actually think um, these participants were actually malicious. Uh, maybe the people that are asking money from their friends to do the, to, to cover up a hole are, were malicious, but not the, uh, not the uh, institutions that were facilitating the stuff. Um, and you know, BlockFi was ov- uh, obviously interested in getting yield. Because um, hedge funds would pay to borrow um, crypto, right? So let's just start, start from step one. You have a million dollars, right? A um, million dollars, um, and you buy with leverage to be delta neutral, uh, as they say, which wasn't wasn't at all. Um, uh, you borrow like three million dollars worth of um, BTC or five million. The average leverage on this trade, uh, from what I heard, was like fifteen to twenty x, um, like five percent down. Like it was. Because it was big institutions, um, which or you're, you had a really good Twitter profile, as some people um, started using as diligence metric, um, and you would borrow, um, say, three million dollars worth of BTC. You put that inside um, the trust. So, and then the trust, whatever the premium is, say it's a hundred percent premium, you get six mil worth of shares. Um, and now if the price of the underlying asset also increases, uh, well, then you also make money. So if it goes up by 2x, and now it's 12. Um, now, and, and the only problem is that, of course, it could be 12x. But what if the premium was the negative symbol in front of it? Yeah, it's negative 12x now. Uh, so uh, this, this obviously caught everybody blindsided um, when it did go to negative because, like I said, for the last six years, it's never been a negative. Um, and... Um, the the real like market movement why it suddenly became like really high like premium to a discount was because of something called the form ten. At this time, the form ten was this process where the one year lockup was now six. Um, so as you can imagine, like the theta risk obviously exponentially increases the longer duration of this, even um, you know by you know three to nine months. But now this was now like six to tw- uh, twelve to six. Um, so everybody was more interested because the d- duration the risk seemed less. Um, but in reality, everybody was kind of noticing it. Um, so as the duration of the lockup got shortened, everybody jumped on. And everybody jumps on, there is no arbitrage because, well, the, the spread closes. Um, so as this was getting marketed, um, as this was um, uh, starting, as a lot more people were de-risking and it fed into their investment like risk profile, um, and as a lot more people were like, putting on additional trades because they made money once and they thought they could just roll it again, um, such as like with three arrows or they did the trade once and made actually made the money and then they did it again with like way more comfortable leverage. Um, yeah, you can imagine like uh, this is the this was a setup for what caused um, the Widowmaker trade. It's because even normal participants um, were starting to do this. It wasn't just three arrows. It was like normal hedge funds. It was crypto hedge funds, which didn't really exist. But even like uh, traditional funds I've heard were starting to do this. Um, that just saw a trade that seemed somewhat safe. That was a really good summary. I, I've got a couple of questions because you started to allude to BlockFi. And there's also a, a dynamic here, even in between G- Grayscale and Genesis that 
uh, Genesis was a yeah. sister company of GPTC uh, of Grayscale, and there was a there was a lending sort of circular loop uh, that doesn't look great with the benefit yeah. of hindsight that was going on there. But before we get there, can you walk us through like what was the impact on price here? Like we all sort of remember around this time that the trade was taking off. This was twenty late twenty twenty early twenty twenty one timeframe, and obviously there was a massive boom in both the price of Bitcoin and then really ETH. ETH just took off like a rocket at one point after Bitcoin. And like how much of this, because uh, on the ETHE, which is the Ethereum version of the GBTC trust, uh, you, you kind of mentioned they did this thing where instead of a 12-month lockup, it's a six-month lockup, which attracts a lot more investors. So how much of the price action that we saw for Bitcoin and ETH during this, during this time period can be attributed to folks running this trade? A lot of it. I think, um, you know, when ETH went from, I think a lot of people might wonder, why did ETH go from 300 to uh, 4,000? Um, and then six months later, it re-pumped um, because of that, because of that mechanism. Um, a lot of it was spot buying. Um, that was just, um, I mean, if, if anybody in the, in, and in like hedge fund world, when you see like, like ETH moving, you typically know, like, you, you always talk about, oh, who's the buyer? Um, is, is it, you know, sailor or is it like this new participant? Like, we don't know, but usually you can figure out like, who's actually buying at that time um, because it's just uh, how OTC markets work. You just see how, where people are buying, spawn, stuff like that. Um, and this was just one-sided buy, right? Because people had to buy the ETH, um, whether it was customer depositors all the way to just like having to like source source that uh, income because, you know, to deposit and get 5% um, yield ETH crypto on crypto. Um, a lot of that was attributed to this trade. Um, and it's also why it crashed so hard um, and also why the hole was so big because they were just eating up um, the spot market um, for a lot of these products um, because Again, you had to source that crypto borrow, um, even though you had ETH, um, US dollar collateral, because you, you borrowed it and you redeposited it. Um, and you know that, that that doesn't come back, right? That, that's why the outflows was like a, such a big discuss, this discussion because once it's in the trust, it's locked there. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like um, the issue. The thing is, like um, people were giving money to you know the BlockFi types um, or these um, you know Genesis types because they they like the they like the crypto on crypto yield or US dollar yields um, that you get for facilitating this trade. Um, and if, if you ever remember, like this, this was a time where there's 0% interest rates, like uh, getting any yield that was like plus 5% just by storing it at some like um, on non-FDIC covered account because you're like, well, what is that? Like it's an acronym, so that's most depositors would think. Yeah, they'll be like, this is crazy yield. Like why am I getting like, um, you know, five to 10% uh, APRs? Um, where, where does the yield come from? Who cares? Uh, let's just deposit them in there. And the marketing obviously was pretty good, um, and uh, that's where I guess a lot of the market movements happened. Um, a lot of people just didn't see this, um, obviously, because they didn't see like it's the um, the upper echelons of of the finance world like kind of controlling the trades. Um, but that obviously had a big big effect on the entire structure of the market. Um, and I can you know email some folks per my per my post like yo this. This isn't looking good, guys. This is. Uh, this sounds like everybody's in this trade, and everybody has is going to have a hole because um, once that you know leverage turns into a negative, like I said, like twelve x negative, um, based on what they saw as a riskless trade, um, is uh, it's going to affect not just uh, not just one participant, but um, the big guys. And then once the big guys are have holes, then all of their clients have holes, and it was just like ripple effects of just max pain. Um, and uh, yeah, who cares, right? Um, who cares about my um, warning of uh, what was going to happen. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Mantra Chain, a security first compliance focused L1 blockchain that paves the way for traditional financial institutions onboard into Web3. Now, I've talked about Larry Fink on this podcast a bunch. You guys have heard the clips, you've seen him on CNBC. 
He's talking about his Bitcoin ETF first, then his ETH ETF, and then he loves tokenization. And what that means is he's looking at the trillions of dollars of real world assets out there, and he wants to digitize them and bring them on chain. And to do that, we need a compliant L1 that supports that. And that's exactly what Mantra is. So they're positioned as the blockchain for tokenized RWAs and regulated digital assets. They offer high performance, scalable architecture, and they support both permissionless and regulated compliant applications, which is a pretty cool feature. They're built on the Cosmos SDK. So they've got IBC Interop and they leverage Cosmwasm for smart contracts. And they've got a whole bunch of cool features like Guard Mobile, passportable DIDs, KYC and AML compliance, and the Mantra token surface. So this is relevant for devs. It's relevant for investors. Uh, definitely go check it out. Testnet Phase 2 is launching soon, and that'll unlock a whole bunch of new opportunities and dApps. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, I get no credit if you don't click the link, uh, so that way Mantra will know that I sent you. So click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out for yourself. One other dynamic that I think is important for listeners to understand is the the lending market structure that existed back in 2021. So a lot of the leverage that was flowing into the system were from these lending desks. So, you know, like Genesis was a lending desk, but also BlockFi was creating a lot of leverage in the system. And the way that they were doing this was, again, the the business model of BlockFi is they were almost like a customer-facing banking-type operation. They wouldn't have described it like that. But basically, you, you take your Bitcoin, you deposit, and they pay, BlockFi would pay you out yield imagine like a savings account in a bank and then they have to they have to find a way to uh you know farm that bitcoin out on the other side into theoretically safe lending and yield opportunities so basically what blockfi that the challenge of blockfi and celsius and like whoever else these uh, like genesis these lending operations were eventually the the demand for borrow started to dry up and the opportunities to source yield safely went away um and that but that was like an additional dynamic for like where the leverage was being sourced from the, the other thing was Genesis was a sister company of Grayscale. And I think one of the circular loops that started to kick in there is that Genesis would start to allow their loans to be collateralized with GBTC. So there was a yep. dynamic where you could borrow money from, say, BlockFi. Actually, Genesis eventually started doing cash loans as well. You would borrow money from BlockFi, lever up into GBTC, take your shares of GBTC you know, that you get from Grayscale, deposit with Genesis, get another loan, and then loop that back into grayscale and just keep doing that trade, right? So that was that was another dynamic for why this all got pretty out of control. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that, you know, the, the way that you've achieved this like under collateralized borrow, quote unquote, was that you you gave the right of the shares back to the company um, as the collateral. Um, so the the holding codes would try to be like, obviously more, um, uh, more this is how you justify under collateralized borrow. So they would hold the shares until the, the end of the end of the loan, um, and you get paid out. But then the the hedge fund would just be at uh, or like the funds or whatever would be in, in a negative um, with this operation. Um, so that was kind of like the well, um, kind of the issue, um, and that's why everybody got hurt um, that was holding these assets, um, and especially when people couldn't repay um, because well, um, there is in such a big hole. Um, so that's. Uh, that was uh, one of the structures that existed. And after this trade, like yield really did dry up um, and credit was hard to find uh, as all these shops kind of like disappeared. You can see how the virtual, the virtuous flywheel would kick in on the way up. So the price of Bitcoin is continuing to go up. There's a bunch of more money coming into the space. There are a bunch of lending shops which are happy to offer this leverage. They need to find yield opportunities as well. So there's this and uh, all, all of that is kind of fuel getting recycled back into GBTC, which is causing the underlying price of uh, 
Bitcoin and ETH on the ETHE side to go up. So you can kind of see this, like people are levering up into this trade and it's actually creating this reflexive feedback loop. What were, what were some of the early warning signs from your standpoint of being in that trade? And walk us through the series of events where things started to break down and it started to go in the other direction. The first one was that the premium was uh, decreasing. Um, that it, I mean, we were looking historically at GBDC, like, hey, um, when we were entering the trade, um, we were like, hey, this looks, uh, this looks still like there, there is still a premium, obviously, um, but it's like obviously teetering. Um, and uh, historically, it, it always teetered like, uh, you know, double digits um, before it get back, went back to triple digits and stuff like that. Um, so the, the premium itself was looking like somewhat, uh, somewhat, uh, Unproven, but like I said before, this it never went negative ever in history at GBTC or ETH. At one point, ETH was like you know, like five hundred percent premium. It's just like it was crazy. Like why 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 would it be so much higher? Um, there had to be like some something a scalp from that. Um, was the thinking? Uh, we actually went to uh, we actually went to some um, um, exotic like options desks um, to, to like write this like pseudo exotic put on on the premium itself um, just to hedge in case this. This would have happened, um, and you know they wouldn't underwrite it. Went to like three desks. They're like, "Yeah, this is too weird. We're not going to do this." Um, and I'm like, "Okay, um, I guess we'll uh, we'll do it a little naked um, because, um, like I said, a lot of people have done this trade before, and it seemed to have made some cash." Um, and then that, that was some early warning signs um, that kind of gave a hint of like that. Um, and I guess it was also like um, I guess there was a little confusion about the management fees of of the fund because it was exorbitantly high. Like it was um, like percentages um I, I guess on the underlying asset just from holding it and just why it was such a cash cow for the the parent co you know grayscale because it's gen you know if you had billions in assets and you're getting like a percent fee on it extrapolated for multiple years out this uh, dcf it back like it's a great business um and it's getting like great fees for the company um so that was th- those were like uh the soft warning signs um but uh, the premium was always high, um, and the trade was like somewhat known, um, and eventually became very known <laughs> across the board. Um, and it was also just like a lot of these lending shops started to package it as as a trade, um, and they were they were selling a trade. It's like you're talking to the S and T guy, um, sales and trading guy, just like telling you about a trade, and then you're trying to buy it. Um, and uh, uh, when the, once that once that started getting popular, um, it, well. The, there was no money to be made at the very end. So there's a lot of people that thought they could make some easy cash as is with every bubble <laughs> that turned into a situation where nobody makes any money um, because there's no such thing as easy money. Um, and uh, I guess that was kind of like a, um, the early warning signs of like why it, it could have gone south. Um, and it was also just like, a, I guess the comfort of people putting so much leverage on this trade. Um, that's that def- defining the confidence. We, like I said, we were one of the lowest leverage um, participants and we even verified with like, people like, like what is the average? Um, the average was like five to 20. Um, we were definitely under that range because we were somewhat concerned um, and thought about doing it uh, flat. Um, but um, then the trade wouldn't have been worth it because there's a lot of operating costs and interest rates and stuff like that. Um, the interest component, as per my tweet, like is actually the most concerning for us because the interest piles up as the underlying asset increases in value because um, you have 3x leverage, but the underlying asset at this time went from you know, $300 to like, uh, like $2,000 um, and then it dripped back down, thank God. Um, you're paying uh, you know, 5x times 3x um, interest over like a six-month period. Um, so that really compounds and eats into your, into your equity. Um, so, um, but even that, that, that's, that's like after the discount happened, um, we were like definitely concerned. What mechanically led to the 
the decrease in premium? Like, what what was it actually mechanically that made it go from a premium to a discount? It was uh, it was really like how popular the trade got. Um, frankly, um, like a lot of people started doing, um, and it was also like I said that the duration of lock uh, being reduced. So that's what really made people like trying to jump in and get comfortable with it. Um, and that was kind of like the uh, the initial design. So um, once that happened, like it's uh, pretty straightforward what happens when it goes from a premium to discount. Now, why it didn't go to like a significant discount at the very end? Um, because for a while, it stayed like a slight discount, which is why we, we kind of got lucky um, getting out of the trade so easily, like at a you know, single digit uh, discounts, because it is being regression. Like it, it should go down to 40% if it's been a premium for so long. Um, and that was because a lot of people thought it would come back. A lot of people stayed in the trade. Um, and uh, we, we got up pretty easily, even though we were like, you know, 10% of ETH um, uh, for the size that we were doing. Um, at 10% of liquid that was kind of being originated at that period, not, not, not the entire supply, sorry. Um, and uh, we still could get out quite easily because a lot of people are like, hey, it's going to come back. Um, and they're putting on the, in the discount, we'll come back to a premium trade uh, pretty early on. Um, so that was like, um, that was surprising, uh, frankly, like. Yeah, even some of our uh, some of our backers like want, want to just stay in the trade, and I'm like, are you guys crazy? Like, um, this this is like negative equity right now. Like, we should definitely get out and cut our losses. Um, and some people stayed on. And, and to that example, like in, in the very beginning, I said like 12x like money. It's also negative 12x equity um, because it would be a well, it's it's a negative uh, negative symbol right in front. So people, and this is why the whole existed, like. Well, because people just stayed in, and just let it roll, and they just thought it would come back, um, and they were just asking money from friends to pay the interest rates, um, interest fees that uh, came across it. So, hey everyone, we'll be back to the program in just a moment. But before we return, wanted to let you know about Das London. Das London is the largest institutionally focused conference in crypto, hosted by Blockworks. But I wanted to give you an update because we are now ten times oversubscribed for this conference. So the bad news is we have actually got to lower, as much as I love you guys, the listeners, we've got to lower our discount rate to margin 10. That's going to get you 10% off. I would highly recommend that you do that soon because you might have noticed ticket prices have gone up 200 pounds and they're only going up from here. And I actually can't guarantee that we're going to have this discount rate forever. Since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of new great speakers sign up for the conference. We've got Brad Garlinghouse as a keynote. We've got Pascal Gauthier as a keynote. We've got new speakers signed on from Goldman Sachs from Franklin Templeton, uh, from some of the largest family offices and allocators based out of the Europe. So Theta Capital Management, L1 Digital. And actually on day one of the conference, we're going to be having an investor day, which is a Chatham House Rules hosted by some of the largest investors in crypto. Then the other thing that happened is we've got our VIP tickets that just went live. There are only 60, but we've actually had a bunch of them that just sold out even in one day. So if you want to be a VIP at the conference, make sure you get your ticket. And again, use code MARGIN10 uh, to hang out with me and Mark, uh, March 18th to the 20th in sunny London. Cheers. How easy was it? You know, Can you describe the process of unwinding that trade, maybe from your perspective as someone who had a sizable amount of the of the ETE supply? But there were definitely, I mean, would it have ever been possible for someone like that, like BlockFi scale to get out of this trade? I don't know how much they had in it, but I mean, how, how easy was it to um, unwind? Yeah, I guess it's tough to, to know um, because, uh, I mean, the, we were looking at daily liquidity and try to be like a, at least like 20, 30% of the daily liquidity for for selling um, in order for the sales that we had because it was on leverage. Um, and uh, it would be really tough, frankly, to like get out of that position over that period of time. Um, it's easy if there's a premium and you could like whatever buffers buffer because 
it's all free money. But if it's if you're if you're losing money, then <laughs> each spread each each time you cross a spread, go down. Like it's, it's tough. Um, but um, uh, the the volumes, like I said, it was number one, number two on uh, OTC markets uh, all, all at all times. Like UPC was number one, and then some weird pharma company uh, number three. Um, it's like yeah, it was always the most popular traded asset on these markets. Um, so the volume was pretty high and traded a lot higher than a lot of other products um, because it was. Well, BTC was hot at that time, so a lot of people were buying. Retail was still buying it um, at that period of time. So um, it was a market to like uh, um, um, uh, uh, get out, get out into. Um, but eventually, that kind of uh, crashed because the discount went down to obviously forty-ish percent, fifty percent. Just to put a bow around it, because maybe some listeners who are listening to this are thinking, "Well, why was this such a problematic trade once the discount flipped? Like, couldn't you just? I mean, you kind of like lose what you put in, but." I think the the just the math on this is is the leverage part uh, component of this. Yeah. So if you had let's say 100 million dollars worth of equity, you know actual capital that that you put into this trade, but you were levered up 10x, you had a billion dollars worth of exposure. So if that that premium that you were going to extract flips into a discount, you could lose many multiples of what you had originally put in, right? Is the way that the math works and that's why that's what ultimately ended up happening to a lot of these big funds like three arrows capital and then it this recursive feedback loop that fueled this trade that's what ultimately ended up causing so many problems in the industry right because everyone was lending money to one another and when you when you start to have massive holes like three arrows capital then all of a sudden boom there's a big hole in blockfi and then there's a run on blockfi then all these other people that are source you you know it's just everyone was related to one another which just made it such an incestuous pit and so difficult to, to like piece apart basically. And that was, that was kind of the issue. It's like you were giving money to people because they had a pretty good Twitter profile. Like, That's so bad. oh yeah, like, oh, this, this guy had like a really, I mean, this guy had a lot of followers. It's, it's sick that I got like 5k followers from my tweet, right? Like give me money. No, that's not how it works. You should be able to look through their, their balance sheet. And, you know, if you do under collateralized loan, like giving money and getting yield back, like um, you should be have, uh, you should pierce through like uh, the underlying asset. Um, this is like, this has been an issue since like the olden days of the bill of ladings um, and double financing um, against like the commodity ship. Um, like it's, uh, it's the first thing you do is like, <laughs> it's, am I the only customer and how many other people are exposed? And this is kind of the issue with finance and why, you know, I guess if comes back to being kind of cool, it's like, you can't look at everything at once. Um, there's no like hidden structures. Like you know exactly what's what's open and where the books are. You can open things up and actually see through it. Um, and people were giving money to three euros, thinking, yeah, they're they're great. Like you see his last tweet, it was hilarious. Uh, and then that was that was a diligence process. It's like, yeah, let's give money to these guys. They're promising this much yield. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, this. I feel like for folks who might be listening and thinking you're exaggerating, I just want to underline the point that you're not. And there there was you know diligence. Diligence processes that got run literally on the order of this person seems like they have a lot of followers or, oh, I trust this CEO or this fund manager. So I, you know, and a lot of, a lot of this lending was under collateralized as well. I think at BlockFi, it was collateralized, but it was collateralized with GBTC. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then the other people who, and I mean, I guess the, the, the trickles back down, like, you know, G, uh, BlockFi and then the, the funds that were doing it and the funds that promised to get extra yield for, you know, whether it's BTC miners all the way to, you know, other lending desks that were like, hey, these guys somehow have yield um, and, and they went global um, because crypto is also a global industry. So it's harder to like look through different things uh, versus just like being fully US nominated. 
uh, a lot of this uh, issues kind of came um, not just domestically, but also abroad because you had all these lending desks like Babel and stuff like that um, and uh, kind of just spread everywhere. And you really don't know how big the effect was. So over the years, um, you were seeing like across two years, like, yeah, we're like, um, we're, 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 we blowed up. Like we didn't tell you guys for a while because we're just hoping that it would get recovered somehow. But I um, guess it didn't happen. Um, and, you know, this this didn't bring FTX down directly. Um, that was obviously them lending against their own like underlying like tokens and assets. Um, but this is what start. That's what this is what restarted the whole. Um, and, you know, FTX is another story that I can talk about, which, um, you know, I. Um, <laughs> it was interesting diligence I did for them um, with regarding to like how it, uh, it first started with a hole. Uh, um, but um, the, I, there was a time where they didn't have a hole. Um, and, but this is what restarted because it was just so popular for trade. It's just kind of a classic duration risk story, actually. And in a in a, in a very, yep. uh, a lot of people are going to poke at me for this, but in, at a high level, it's very, it's kind of similar actually to what happened with banks uh, during last March, which is you know, this large portfolio of, collateral in the form of uh, long duration, like 10-year, 30-year securities, it went down far more than anyone thought it possibly could. And it put a lot of these banks in, you know, it wasn't a, it's not a credit risk situation. Ultimately, those treasuries are going to be money good. But if you needed to withdraw all at the same time, it would be massively problematic. And that's kind of what happened with Grayscale as well. It's like now I'm pretty sure now that we've got the e, e, ET, or the ETFs, the discount has basically closed, right? I don't, I don't know what the discount is today, but I saw it's basically basically nothing anymore so if you've been able to stick it out then you could have lasted but but that isn't what happened um and yeah it took it took too many years and you would have paid interest the entire time because it was on leverage right so um, i was good i was just gonna say like it's also like because of these like hidden like shadow banking-esque uh, structures like uh, another thing that would have been nice like if it was transparent enough you could have made the debt tradable which would have been cool to see like hey how what's the repayment which is what you say with ftx shares um like or FTX claims market, like what is this to the dollars because it reached back to premium. But like, um, if you have that kind of price discovery and like uh, you can trade in and out of that debt, um, that could have solved it too, not just the original issue. Um, just kind of like, you know, San Francisco real estate, like um, mortgages, like it trades at a discount now, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but that does help like alleviate like the original risk um, as it trades from premium to discounts and somebody is willing to take um, slight, slight losses over, over the period of time. So, there's other ways to um, make sure that doesn't blow up, um, but the loss still would have been there. Um, but because it did blow up, um, well, um, that's where we are today. And that's also why I'm like somewhat excited about the market uh, as it is, because there aren't any like, um, from my understanding, that big of like um, holes. People talk about on-chain stuff, but in terms of like TradFi, um, which is really the cause of, of the bust, like um, there isn't. I mean, because there there is literally no credit. Like it's hard to get even get loans outside of just like. Um, some platforms, um, but uh, um, we'll talk about some other reapplication things on chain. But like, uh, it does feel like a fresh start, which to me is enough to catalyze, I guess, market recovery um, and see, I guess, where Bitcoin should have been. Or, um, but I mean, we also printed like multiple X's of our money supply since 2020, so I, I don't know if the price actually went off um, or just more money in the supply. BT is actually the same price, so yeah. David, uh, maybe in, uh, it's starting to wind down here. Do you think that, you know, I, I guess you sort of just answered this last question I was going to ask you, which is, you know, when you look out into the market today, is there any cause for concern? And if I feel like what I heard you just say is not not a lot of the same type of leverage and credit is being extended in, and, and there's no like weird products like GBTC out there um, or kind of like hidden, you know, the, the net effect is that there's not very much hidden leverage being injected via TradFi. 
but you did mention on chain uh, there being potential concern. Like, yeah. can, you, can you walk us through what that is? Like, and are we at risk of repeating the same thing, or what do you think? Um, I think what's happening on chain. I mean, um, in DeFi, because I guess I'm building in that space, and I can mention that very briefly at the end. Um, but uh, you're, you're seeing um, rates increasing. I, th- I guess I guess the introduction of staking has introduced uh, not a risk-free rate, but like a base rate of yield um, that is. Um, from a base economic activity, um, you know, T-bills for U.S. dollars, but ETH denominated as staking. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, when in raising right environments, high yield bonds win um, versus like equities get trashed and then the T-bills suck. So it's uh, kind of milk and ass kind of like era of like high yield, which is why I like, you know, um, everybody is in private credit in TradFi, I like to say, like that's kind of like the new like hot industry um, because it's the most, um, I guess, uh, macro macro friendly um so i think you're seeing that with like um uh, liquid reta- uh, restaking tokens like kind of people assuming it's a risk free rate um when there is liquidity issues with the underlying assets uh, so people are just like assuming that it's effectively safe collateral um i think that's kind of like the same kind of uh, ideas like when you think something's safe but it really isn't and it's mispricing risk uh, whether it's duration or liquidity or just assuming that it's equivalent um but it, it it's not that much of a risk because it still is backed by Again, the ETH itself. Um, so, um, in the ETH ecosystem, at least, um, it's not really a big concern. It's like the large concern I've heard, but frankly, the underlying asset is still there. Um, it's not. It's still over collateralized lending. It's still like uh, it's not under collateralized. There's no like um, weird like bar strategy that's over levered. Um, there's no Terra where mechanism just goes down, which was a far worse trade than GBTC, in my opinion, because that just went straight to zero. Uh, it's not like FTX claims and does bankruptcy. You get like now 80 cents a dollar today. It's like that's true zero. And that was actually my worst loss, way more than GBTC. Um, and uh, so those mechanisms are obviously being diligent. And I think the, the ecosystem is just maturing. Like um, this was like, when DeFi just kind of came out, and um, uh, but now that we we all have a little more uh, sensitive ear um, in terms of like what exactly is risk, and what exactly is risky. Um, again, the sirens are a little closer to to, to pull, um, but um, yeah, I mean, in, in the market today, I think um, there's definitely more. Um, the, there's I, I don't I haven't seen like a uh, over 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 discussed over conversed trade right now that. Um, comes to where everybody thinks it's safe. I'm kind of like a specimen, but um, I, I'm frankly I'm I'm very very excited about BTC. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say it's financial advice, um, but uh, it's uh, it's definitely like at a time where uh, it's starting to become truly the institutions are coming. Like that that meme is finally here, um, so that's definitely exciting to me. Um, I think uh, it's starting to like rebrand and kind of be an asset that. Uh, starting to be accepted um, as like a global like standard um, because you know the US has finally accepted it as an ETF. That's a huge branding event. And um, over next year, I'm not going to see some artificial priced like action like forcing to go up. And it truly feels organic, which um, the, the only thing that like, um, and really the next steps is just make sure the last chapters are closed. Um, so you had all these warning, like concerns, like, hey, you had this... Um, Grayscale ETF like outflows. Like that was that was everybody's concern. Uh, everybody was talking about this. Even before like people t- like all those charts existed now. This was everybody's talking about there can be so much sell volume. But we, we're over the hump. Um the Binance thing, you know, like uh, there might be a DOJ thing and it's already being settled, you know, four billion, which is you know not that bad. Um that's settled. And then FTX estate, that's settled. Um maybe Mount Gox, but it's not that much compared to Grayscale. Um so all those chapters are done. It just feels like a fresh start. Um, and that's why I'm quite excited because um, I guess the, the bad demons are gone. Um, and 
um, going forward, it really feels like just organic interest. Um, and it's a new industry, I guess. Um, it might be linear growth at this point. And so just something super like, um, super cycle, like, as they say, where it just like exponentially grows up. It might, it might feel a little more linear. Um, which is tough because everybody just wants to short every time it's linear, but, um, it's a revenue of a bear market. Um, so that's, that's my thinking going forward. And, um, I guess, uh, just looking at like on-chain stuff too. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely like a lot more innovations that are coming out. Um, uh, that gets me excited at least for what we can do for, uh, I guess, crypto. The linear point is a really interesting one. It's, it's tough because, yeah, Su Zhu, who's the founder of Three Eras Capital, famously called for a super cycle. And this thing that maybe ended obviously wasn't. And people have been saying that for a long time. But I do think one of the things that I'm starting to come to terms with is I, I think there are lots of structural reasons why this industry is going to continue to be cyclical. Even in the, the TradFi world, there are business cycles. Um, they don't really exist anymore because the Fed is seemingly messing with them. But they, but historically, there are these business cycles. And I still see a lot of structural reasons for why it should be like that. But I do think the net new incremental dollar that's coming into Bitcoin is now a passive structural dollar as opposed to a retail dollar or someone that's trying to front run retail. And so basically, the net effect of that is like, they're mean reverters, right? So instead of chasing, on average, they're going to try to mean revert and sell if it's gone up too much or buy if it's gone down too much. And whereas retail doesn't do that, they let it go absolutely to zero or all the way to the moon. And I, I do I do think we should be prepared for something that looks more like a, a random walk or like not a random walk, but a you know, slow walk up, a slow more linear walk instead of these exponential boom busts. But I, 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 do you agree with that thesis overall? Uh, yeah, and that's kind of like why I guess uh, I mean the sentiment market is like obviously rates are not zero anymore um, for ETH or USD, um, and that's kind of why it might feel like a little more linear because it is a time when we're kind of kind of discovering like the risk curve or or the rate curve of crypto um, of like things that you that are happening domestically within crypto itself and generating its own yield, um, whether staking all the way to these other assets. Um, so that's that's what gets me interested. It's like, how do we encourage this linear growth in, in, in the market today? Um, you're seeing products like Pendle and stuff like that come out, including my own company, MetaStreet, which focuses on like, how do you create like a high, higher yield with higher risk? I'm not saying it's riskless. I'm saying it is higher risk, but it's also higher yields. Um, and that that is actually like, I got, like, like I said, in terms of macro is um, what a, uh, what seems the most interesting is like how do you, how do you achieve like a productive yields um, in a sense? Um, so um, that's uh, that's been my thesis yeah. at least. David, maybe in our closing minutes here, could you just say first of all, uh, you know, you put a uh, the genesis of this conversation was uh, this great thread that you put out. So we'll link that in the show notes, and uh, people should have to go follow you on Twitter. But could you just say a couple words about what you're what you're building, and, and then we can wrap up. Absolutely. Um, for my Twitter, that was my first story out of my many stories that I've uh, lost a lot, of, a lot of money on over the years, um, whether it was MEV all the way to um, F- FTTC uh, round, which was you know, full of holes. And I'll talk about that in another thread. Uh, Terra, and then uh, also like the origin of my company. It's like, it all kind of starts with like the mistake and then you kind of learn from it and you kind of like make interesting things out of it. Um, and uh, um, yeah, for, for MetaStreet, we... Uh, we're looking for, I guess, illiquid assets um, on chain, um, and that's very common. Um, if you think about like most of finance, it's not actually money markets, which is what DeFi is obsessed with. 
It's actually caps for the markets um, where you have illiquid assets and you can turn into great yield. Houses, equipment, college tuition, like these things are great yield. Um, there are, they're, they are the largest assets um, in the world, like U.S. real estate. Um, and uh, we're trying to like bring a lot of those concepts of like creating these liquidity products um, against these assets. Um, I think a lot of people are like really focused on the like, stake yield, which is great, ETH and ETH yield um, that comes from securing the network. But then there, you have all these other like illiquid assets on chain, um, whether it's like, you know, gaming assets all the way to like CryptoPunks, for example, um, that yields way higher multiples on, on this risk-free rate. Um, so for CryptoPunks, like the, mar- the market clearing on like, let's say NFTs, um, it's like about 23% APR on ETH on ETH, which seems a little like crazy, but... Because th- and that's also why like um, illiquid assets in TradFi like they're almost higher than the treasury yields. Why? Because it's risk, um, and it's just a question of like how do you structure that correctly um, and create I guess like uh, um, this product with just uh, liquid liquid credit tokens, liquid staking tokens um, to, to produce that yield. Um, that's what that's what we're really focused on building. Is like how do we create like a um, favorite DeFi words oracleless, permissionless, and governanceless protocol that like can. can extract those yields and bring it to the public and um, have people participate in this ecosystem without having to actually care about the underlying asset. Um, my, you know, in, when I was at DBD, like it didn't matter what the collateral is, as long as it's produced yield, um, that's called yield. Um, so once from all the way from like, like I, said, I used to work in like art lending all the way to like um, uh, Re- Regal, which is real estate gaming, like leisure. So we looked at like even timeshares to trailer parks to even normal houses, like all that produces yield. Um, and that's kind of the alchemy of finance is that, you can find interesting ways to have both parties benefit. Um, so that's kind of what we've been focusing on. It's like, how do you have this like a protocol that can produce interesting yields from any asset? Um, starting with CryptoPunks, because I think it's the most consensus NFT. Um, and it's also dealing with the most liquidity um, with rather high APRs. Well, guys, definitely, um, you know, go check out what, what David is building and, uh, you know, not financial advice to your own research, but sounds super interesting. And dude, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a, this was a great episode. I kind of knew... At the high level, some of this trade, but I didn't know a lot of these details. And this is awesome. I think it's going to be super valuable for the listeners. So thanks, man. We'll have to do this again sometime soon. Thank for sure. Thanks for having me on. Maybe after one, uh, another thread. Close <laughs> up. Uh, Let's do it. On. Let's do it. All right. Cheers. Cheers.